Can video games be good for you? What about Dungeons and Dragons? Today, we talk to Michael Downey, an avid gamer, musician, and podcaster who began suffering from severe depression as a teen, followed by suicidal thoughts and attempts on his own life during his 20s. Michael swears by the beneficial properties of both digital and over-the-board games, which he says help clear his mind of depressive thoughts. In addition, Michael feels that games imbue us with a sense of purpose and agency over our own lives, as well as provide desperately needed community for those who may have difficulty connecting with people in the so-called real world. And get this, Michael has never traveled outside of the United Kingdom, yet has close ties all over the world. Pocket friends, he calls them. In fact, this summer, he is slated to be the best man in his best friend's wedding, where they will actually meet in person for the very first time. My name is Benjamin Russick, licensed marriage and family therapist, and this is my podcast. Look, just tell me what to do. Who are you, sir, and where are you? Uh, my name is Michael Downey. I am not even in the same continent as you. I'm, I'm in merry old England. Holy shit. And it is daytime over here, a beautiful Saturday. I'm cooped up indoors because that's what we do during a pandemic in the United States. I'm cooped up inside as well. It's a horrible wet and rainy Saturday. You know why? Because it's freaking the United Kingdom. It's like Seattle. It's like Seattle has its own country. And I don't know yeah. if you're familiar with Seattle, but it, it's... Yeah, yeah, I know Seattle. It's a terrible place. And I mean, I like England, <laughs> but <laughs> tell us who you are. I am a all-purpose nerd, podcaster, gamer, musician. I contribute and edit a podcast called Modern Escapism. Professionally, I'm a software engineer working for a tier two bank in the UK. And yeah, that's me. I'm in my own mind a very boring person, but apparently people find me interesting. What do they say is so interesting about you? I have no idea, but they, people seem to come back to my podcast week after week. I think people seem to glomp onto my sunny disposition and acerbic nature. That's a good mix. I don't think most people in the United States will know what the word acerbic means, but but I'm glad you used it in a sentence. <laughs> I'm just going to let them wonder <laughs> oh, what it means, and short. they're going to have to go, what is it? Sunny disposition and acerbic? Acerbic must be good. <laughs> so, uh, it, it, well, well, kudos to you for having a sunny disposition in a rainy continent. So today we're going to talk about how your struggle with depression got pretty serious. It did, yeah. And we're going to get into your unique way of managing that. So uh, how old are you? I'm 35. You're 35. Where would you like to begin? My issues of mental health kind of stemmed from being a teenager and not through any particular negative experience. I grew up in a fairly nice village in the countryside, a very middle-class lifestyle. I went to very good schools, but I struggled to fit in with people. Nobody disliked me. Like I wasn't popular. I wasn't in a clique. I just got on with everybody, but not well enough with everybody to maintain meaningful relationships for a very long time. Mm -hmm. So I found myself being quite a lonely teenager. I think probably I lacked a lot of social skills. I struggled kind of with who I was for a very long time. I became one of those people whose entire identity is their hobbies. I was the kid who played guitar. You know, that was my thing. But I don't think that's enough that you can build a personality around, around people. Most of my symptoms with depression tend to be the classic ones. General self-loathing attitude, extreme lethargy or laziness, unwillingness to kind of take care of oneself overeating, overdrinking. For the longest time, I was of the belief that the world was against me, that I had no luck in this life. And if I'd been born something different, I would have a better life. When really it was an unwillingness to take control of my life. I have some issues with addiction, but mostly down to like food addiction or nicotine addiction. I used to drink quite a lot, but I was, I don't believe I was ever alcoholic, but I was 
I was numbing a lot of the feelings I was having with alcohol. I was very impulsive. I racked up a lot of debt through impulsive spending just to try and make myself feel better. And the worst thing I think that I did in terms of my own depression was I didn't tell anybody. I hid it from a lot of people for a very long time. Like even like my close family, even my ex-wife, like I hid it from a lot of people until it got so bad that it couldn't be hidden. Uh, when you say it got so bad it couldn't be hidden, what would people see? What, what were they seeing you like wearing like shabbily clothes? Were you gaining lots of weight? Were you not leaving your apartment for days at a time? Were you self harming in any way? Like, and I ask because I think some people need to know what depression looks like. So, in my particular brand of it, I, like I didn't self harm or anything like that. It was looking shabby. It was not taking care of myself. I mean, as you can see on the Zoom call, I've got quite a large beard. It used to be like really scraggly. I didn't take the time and the effort to look after it. So it was just this kind of long, lank, greasy, nasty hair that I grew for about five years. Probably didn't smell the best. I didn't look after my teeth, so my breath stank. At the time I was working in contact centers and call centers, if I was working weekend shifts, I'd turn up hungover, stuff like that. Like I, I took literally no pride in myself. I wore the same clothes for a couple of days at a time. I probably re had a really horrible smell about me, if I'm perfectly honest. Other than that, people would just see me getting quiet and quite withdrawn. My ex and I would go to dinner parties and friends' houses and stuff like that, and I'd just kind of sit in the corner and not talk to anybody, even though these were like my good friends who I'd hung out with a lot and I, who I was usually excited to be around. It would take me until I'd gotten drunk until I kind of engaged with anybody. Like I just didn't want to be around people. Yeah, which is an interesting sidebar on addiction. You know, a lot, I say that a lot of times that your drug of choice does the thing for you that you need the most. And in your case, it was connection, it sounds like. Yeah. Um, you mentioned, you know, when you were a teenager, you, you weren't able to make connections with people at school. And that sort of isolative pattern sounds like it increased and increased and increased and increased. And the reason that depression is so deadly, tell me if this sounds familiar, that when you're really depressed, it's like all the arrows point downward. If somebody says, hey, you're a great guy, your brain kind of goes, oh, this person is just saying that because uh, they 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 kind of pity me or they they don't really know what they're talking about. Or, you know, I'm, I'm someone says, they I love you. They say, well, I'm a burden to that person and, and they don't, they, they'd be better off without me, you know, around. Yeah, that's a, that is quite familiar. Um, sometimes I can fool myself with it as well because my natural sense of humor is quite self-deprecating. I generate a lot of comedy in taking the piss out of myself. And sometimes I think I forget to stop that when it stops being funny. Yeah. If that makes sense. I mean, it's still something I do to this day. Like, you know, my girlfriend can say, oh, you're handsome or you're sexy or whatever. And I'll be like, you're deluded, love. No. And it's just like, my brain still wants to tell me, no, no, no one can think that about you. And it's 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 an ongoing struggle. Yeah, it is difficult to hold compliments when you're feeling crappy. I also describe depression as kind of like this giant maelstrom or whirlpool that's so large, you don't even know you're going down. And then you'd be sailing along and you think you're, you're going in a straight line, but actually it's going slightly curved, you know, and yeah. it's slowly, slowly, like everything in your life seems to be headed towards this. It's so difficult. Um, depression is so insidious because it infects your entire perception. It's like you can't even get meta with it because when every time you try to get meta on your depression, it finds a way to convince you that the long view that you've just taken is in fact some construct of, you know, what a shitty person you actually are. It's, it's crazy.
Yeah. So my depression is the kind that can be treated with um, is it SSRIs. Yes. So mine is purely down to chemical imbalance in the brain. I think I, yeah. think I don't retain dopamine or serotonin, um, or at least that's what the doctor told me. So I will always, probably for the rest of my life, have dips into depression. It will right. be something, you know, it's not triggered by anything in particular. Um, and often when I have depressive periods, I don't realize I'm in one until I'm kind of nearly at the bottom of it. Yeah. And it's, it's like, oh, shit, okay, I need to actually do something and sort myself out. Yeah, I want to speak to that piece a little bit. I absolutely support if you're feeling depressed and or especially so suicidal that you see a psychiatrist immediately and discuss medications. I, my own personal opinion is I wonder, you know, when you say, well, I naturally don't produce dopamine. The thing about science is that science is a measure of what we can measure. Yeah. It's not like, well, this is the whole reality. It's like a quantitative assessment of our own ignorance. <laughs> you know, it's like, this is, this is where it stops, <laughs> yeah. right? And so I do wonder if we have a natural inability to produce dopamine, what precedes that natural inability? Like, I wonder, could there be a deeper psychological issue beneath our natural difficulties to do X, Y, Z? And the problem is, is that we can't measure that because it's, it's completely impossible. And yeah. so I just, I'm just one, I wonder about it. I just think it's, it's interesting to think about when you extend your brain beyond what's rational. You know, my old therapist once said to me, he said, look, have you ever met somebody who is in love, uh, get a cold? I'm like, what are you talking about? He said, well, when people are in love, they're in this really, really heightened state. They feel amazing. And if they, even if they get a cold or they get the flu, they kind of still function just fine. There's something, there's something about it. And you could say, well, love is just a function of, well, it improves, produces endorphins and it produces dopamine. And it's like, well, they, yes, the fact that they're in love is preceded by a psychological state. It's just interesting to think about. Anyway, I'm rambling a bit. I kind of wanted no, to- No, no, that into, was good. I like that. That was good. Yeah. <laughs> I, I kind of wanted to get into, just for everyone's information, the suicide rate among men, particularly white men, as I understand it, and I don't know why that is, is higher than pretty much every demographic. Is that accurate? Do you know about that? I think so. I think at least certainly in the UK, it is quite high. It's in this in that age group that I'm kind of smack bang in the middle of because it's that kind of 18 to 40. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I often wonder, I, I, one of my theories is that I think that when Women do a much better job of community. Um, Absolutely. And I think they're just emotionally tougher than men in a lot of ways. I think it's also that women are encouraged from a younger age to be open with other women. Exactly, and speak out. Men are discouraged from it. And I, I will say this is an absolute credit to my upbringing and my parents. I was never once discouraged from speaking yeah. my mind of, or thinking however I thought or being open with my feelings. But it took me a very long time to realize that for myself, despite how many times I was told it. Like I say, I grew up in a rural area. I went to a very sporty school. So there was lots of testosterone. And mm -hmm. if you didn't play football or soccer or rugby, you weren't one of the cool kids. Everything had to be ever so manly and stuff like that. I don't know where I kind of got it into my head that men shouldn't express their feelings, but it kind of it got into my head. Yeah. I, I got to the point where I started being open about it. I started telling people. But actually, I remember what my trigger was uh, for doing that. It was um, 2014. It was after the sad passing of Robin Williams. Yeah. Because... As a 90s kid, Robin Williams was a big deal for me. And because of the circumstances around his death, it kind of made me realize that, okay, let, shit, let's actually talk about this. And I became very open about it. I didn't want to say it was like a crusade for me, but it was just like, okay, I suffer from depression. Let's fucking normalize it. Yeah. I'll, I'll talk the ear off anybody about depression, like not, and, but not 
in a, oh, I'm so depressed or, oh, I'm being sad today kind of way. It's just like, no, this is the shit I have to deal with on a day-to-day basis. Certainly. Like, you know, some days it's an absolute struggle for me to get out of bed. Other days it's not. Some days all I want to do is eat a 14-inch pizza and just like wallow in my self-pity. Other days I don't. I can't tell when those days are coming and I just have to face these things whenever they appear. And you said you had some suicidal, uh, did you have a suicide attempt? There was like three times I really had proper suicidal ideation and one was was an actual attempt. The actual attempt happened shortly after my ex-wife and I split up, about four months after. I was trying to start of kind of push my life forward, get out of the miserable rut I was in, start going forward. It wasn't a planned thing. But it was like that moment of rock bottom and not being able to cope with it. Mm-hmm. I basically, I went out on a date and I had a very bad date. Um, after that date ended, I went to the pub and I started drinking. And I really drank, like drank as if I didn't want to live anymore. Because at the time I didn't. It was a very cold March and it was snowing. I remember it distinctly snowing because there weren't any taxis for me to get home. So I walked in the snow. I didn't have a heavy jacket on or anything like that. It was like absolutely freezing cold. And uh, I was crossing this bridge in Newcastle called the Red Huff Bridge. It's one of the tallest bridges in the area over the River Tyne. And I got halfway along it and I kind of climbed the barrier and stood just peering down into the water. Oh, Jesus Christ. And it was drunk. Yeah, like it was was rough. And the thing is, because it was snowy and it was like two in the morning, there was no traffic. There was no one driving over the bridge that would have like honked the horn at us or tried to stop me or anything like that. And I remember looking down at that water and I thought of my mum and and I I thought I just had this like clarity where it's like I sobered up and I just thought of, of that moment the next day when like my my flatmate would have rang it to say I didn't come home or the police rang it to say they'd found my body or something like that um and I, it just it broke my heart and I, so I realized I couldn't do that to my mother yeah I couldn't do that to my dad my brother anybody like that and they were the people the only real people I had outside of my friendship group that I had at the time you know like it was just they were the closest family and my mother was very worried about me in general anyway because she knew about my struggles with mental health and I remember climbing back over the barrier on the on the bridge and just sitting down and crying in the snow for about 20 minutes. Oh, wow. And at that point, I kind of realized I could barely feel my hands. So I kind of like took myself together and just kind of walked the next mile home. The next day, I basically wrapped myself in two duvets, clung to the radiator for the whole day. I was so cold for like that entire next day. And I just lay there and I cried. It was that day. It kind of changed everything because I realized how low I'd gotten. Because up until that point, I knew I was still depressed, but I was just like putting a brave face on it. And it's just like, oh yeah, let's go to the pub, lads. Oh, let's, I'll go on a date. I'll get on Tinder. I'll see if I can meet somebody. I'll get laid or whatever. Yeah. But it was that day where I kind of actually realized myself, no, I'm actually in a lot of trouble here. And um, I booked my first therapy session. I found a therapist who I'm still seeing to this day. Um, and I can't thank her enough. Like she has saved my life because she helped everything. Like I saw her four times that first month, just letting everything out and just getting it all off my chest. That's a hell of a story, man. But it's one I'll tell very willingly to people because I want people to know. It again, goes back to that men don't talk about these things. It's just like, no, I, I could have accidentally died from that. I could have just slipped off it. And it's something like a hundred foot drop into the water from that, um, from that bridge. Now you're telling the whole world. Exactly. I want to go over this with the people because it's important. So suicidal ideation, folks, is a fancy term meaning thoughts about suicide. So a suicidal ideation can mean, oh, I don't want to be in the world anymore. Or it can be, I want to harm myself. It can, it's, it's a, a sort of an umbrella term for any thought that sort of hints at ending one's life. It's not the kind of thing you have to worry about unless it meets three criteria. A, you have intent to harm yourself. 
you have a plan. So I want to harm myself. B, plan, I'm going to go jump off the Golden Gate Bridge. C, the Golden Gate Bridge is just down the street or it's across town or I can get there. So if you or a loved one is experiencing suicidal ideation, you want to ask about those two things. You want to say, hey, so what's your plan? I mean, it sounds like an odd question to ask, but it's a question I ask my patients quite often, actually. How do you plan on hurt harming yourself? And that, well, I, I want to shoot myself in the head. Well, do you have a gun? No. Do you have a, well, my roommate has a gun and then you have a problem. So yeah. what I would recommend anybody do ever is if somebody has meets those three criteria, I don't know how it works over in the UK, but in the United States, you take them to the local emergency room and or call 911. Getting someone to a hospital and to be assessed by a doctor is the number one thing you can do because they will triage everything from there. So it, and this involves drug overdose. It involves any kind of really extreme mental health emergency of any kind. If you don't know what to do, get them to an emergency room full stop. That's your job. Don't let them sleep over at your house. Don't go over there and nurse them back to health because you could kill them. I mean, I've, I've heard stories like that where someone would relapse and they're like, oh, let them sleep it off at my home. And the guy woke up dead the next day and they yeah. should have just brought him to the ER. We also have, if you're in absolute mental distress and at risk of harming yourself or others, there's obviously the police um, in the UK will help. Yeah. And depending on the areas, well, it tends to be the metropolitan areas rather than kind of more rural areas. Mm -hmm. But a lot of them, um, local councils have crisis teams who you can ring for any number of reasons. They tend to basically take you to an office and something and try and get you calmed down, try and work you through some kind of mental health exercises just to bring you down from the edge and then put you in touch with a doctor. Is there like a 911 number in your country? Uh, yeah. 999. 999. Great. If you're in this country and you just don't think and you dial 911, it'll still connect to the same number. Oh, fascinating. Yeah. Good to know. I think it's because we watch that, that much American TV. Well, it's also <laughs> very cool. If you, in the United States, if you dialed 999, you just get a busy signal. Um, <laughs> because we don't include anybody in anything. Listen, I think that's a good summary of the depressive piece. I really appreciate it. We're going to move on now to what saved your life sir yeah so uh, i kind of describe open describe myself as a kind of an all-purpose nerd and it, it's true i've been playing video games since i was like seven when in a in a fit of brilliant parenting on my parents part they sat me in front of doom on their pc Doom. <laughs> Yeah, played a grown-ups game at seven years old. It's wonderful. So video gaming has been kind of one of my big passions in life. Um, when I was 15, when I was that isolated teenager, I picked up the guitar um, mm -hmm. and I started learning how to play the guitar and got, without boasting too much, I got pretty good at it. And it became this wonderful focusing tool for me because you can lose hours, you can lose days to nailing a Jimi Hendrix lick and stuff like that. As an adult, I discovered I really enjoy the gym. Um, and throughout the pandemic, because obviously locked in a house, can't go out and see people, can't go jam with other adults, I started the podcast with a few friends of mine I met online. Then following on from that, I've discovered Dungeons and Dragons. So I've just got a myriad of hobbies which help me distract myself and procrastinate and keep that keep the old brain occupied. There's a real science behind the idea that if you give your mind something to do, it feels better. I'm assuming it probably oh, yeah, because yeah. it produces dopamine and serotonin. Yeah. Which world would you like to dive into? Uh, because this is the thing, video games and D&D &D and, and just games in general, I feel are pathologized by the culture. As if someone is wholly you know, absorbed into that one of those worlds, that there must be something wrong with that person. And I feel like introversion in general is pathologized. That if you are someone who likes small groups of people, who kind of likes to stick to your, you know, live in your head a little bit, that there must be something wrong with you. I've always said that the job of the extrovert is basically to take care of the collective, that the physical realm of the world. And the job of the introvert is to kind of tend to the spirit world or the realm of God in a way. 
And yeah. the problem is, is that the structures that we have to name things and categorize people and triage and do mental health were created basically by extroverts. Basically, it's, it's an extroverted construct. This is how things are built. And so the problem is, is the, I, this is my theory, my own little theory, is that the extroverts have built this structure which defines a lot of the introversion, introverted pursuits as pathological because you're not really participating in the culture. Now, it is true that if somebody's isolative and they're not reaching out and they're totally cut off, and that is, that's not good. The, the experts will say, you know, go to the beach and, and, and do a sport and, and go on a 30-mile, do a, one of those uh, marathon runs. And it's like, that's healthy. And, you know, go, go do all these. <laughs> go travel to buy a plane ticket to this remote location and go see a polar bear. That's, that's healthy. And it's like, well, okay, why shouldn't pulling up, why shouldn't playing, you know, civilizations five for 12 hours a day and with people all over the world be a healthy thing? Why shouldn't playing, I used to play chess a lot. Why shouldn't playing chess for six hours a day in a cafe and studying, you know, basically you're studying geometry and math be a healthy thing. Why shouldn't these things be healthy? What's what's wrong with them? I think with gaming, especially with video games, it's, there is a balance to be taken. Like you can take video gaming too far. Uh-huh. I've been kind of guilty of that in the past. One of the things that I've been told in the past, like when you're feeling low and it's just like your brain needs to be distracted, is to read a book. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people say reading a book is a very healthy thing for a kind of scattered brain. Okay, fair enough. I play narrative video games. So what's the difference between me playing a video game versus a book? I also think that like kind of in your definition of how these things are pathologized, the people who write the concepts and write that, you know, say like you should go out and do exercise, you should go to the beach, you should go see this, go see that, fly here, do that, whatever. I think that also ignores that everyone's individual and how people cope with these things needs to be accepted that it can be done differently. I like video games because I have a sense of agency in whatever story I'm playing. It might be the most linear game in the world. It might be essentially a film that occasionally I press buttons in. Because yeah. <laughs> God knows there's been a few games like that recently. Yeah. Um, but I have some agency in that. Whereas if I'm reading a book or if I'm watching a film, I don't. I have no agency. I just have the author's intent. That's fascinating. So that's the thing about depression is depression is the opposite of agency. You feel as though the world is sucking you down a tube. Yeah. And when you play video games, especially as a depressed person, it gives you something to have agency over. Whether that's blasting the heads of zombies in Resident Evil or becoming a megalomaniac in civilization, you know, you get to have agency. You get to make choices that matter to you in that moment or to the character you're playing in that moment. A lot of times it can just be just the bloody fantasy of it. You get to kind of escape from the doldrum of, of real life for a little while. If you wouldn't want to go on a crime spree in Grand Theft Auto, completely consequence-free, you can. Yeah, yeah, you can. You know, can't really do that in the real world. <laughs> right, right. Not a, not, a, not, a, not a great plan. I would like to drop a little bit into the D&D. You told me the day that, that D&D, some of those games can go on for years. That basically you have what's called a dungeon master and the dungeon master basically creates a universe and then his friend or her friends sit around and roll dice and kind of work through this universe. What's that world like? I will admit I'm not that experienced in it. Whereas with video games, you're... If you're playing a narrative video game or a multiplayer video game, you're giving a world to occupy. The world is given its own rules uh-huh. by the developers. D&D allows you to play in a way that you can strip those away. So there are official rule books for D&D. Uh, Player's Handbook, Dungeon Master's Guide. 
but you don't actually necessarily need to use any of that. Or if there's rules in it that you aren't happy with, as a dungeon master, you can go, no, sod that, we'll do it a different way. The whole concept of it is um, collective storytelling. So the dungeon master or the game master, depending on whether you're playing stuff like, because there are other games like Pathfinder, Cyberpunk, that kind of thing. They all work around the same basis though. As the dungeon master, you can generate a world. You can take pick a pre-made world if you want. Like Forgotten Realms is a classic one from D&D that a lot of people play their games in. You know, you create a world for people to play in. You have your players who will all be role-playing as a set character the dungeon master will act as basically the rules arbiter every antagonist every non-player character but it's, it's a role for a very creative person because you get to then play through these stories so me as a dungeon master i can i can say to you you know you start in a tavern there are some dwarves over there yes yeah. an elf over there what do you want to do and then the onus then is thrown to the player to go what would the player's character do so right. you might say oh i want to talk to those dwarves because my character likes dwarves <laughs> and then you go and i'll say okay this dwarf says he's got some trouble with with some orcs down the road yeah. do you want to go help him sort it and he'll that give you 10 like gold fun. and stuff like that and it's like when you're playing as kids and you're just making up a game on the spot and you're making up a little story a little adventure yeah. for yourself and you're playing in the woods it's 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 effectively that but you use dice to influence what you do so you know if you're in a fight and you say i want to hit this this orc with my sword it's like yeah. okay roll your dice and see what happens you hit over a certain number you'll hit him you roll a lower number and you might miss him so then yeah the dungeon master then gives you the reaction of the orc and stuff like that it becomes this wonderful tool for expression and yeah as i said these games can go on for a long time i've seen games going on the various subreddits for people talking about games that have lasted decades wow. you know shocking enough managed to keep the same players in them you know they've managed to get people organized over so many years to continue these epic storylines and these characters become almost real to people because they are so invested in it and wow. it's it's a wonderful hobby yeah there was this t-shirt i once saw that said introverts unite separately and in your own homes yeah sounds very much <laughs> <laughs> you know in, in in my country you know there's this perception of gamers and i when i say gamers i mean D video games the whole thing and i don't know if that's yeah. a fair category or not but like there's this store up the streets called gamescape and before the pandemic in the evenings i think it was one or two three four days a week actually they had a back area where all the all the nerds would go and they would be playing all kind of games you'd look in there and it looked exactly how i would expect it looked a lot of, like a lot of disheveled young white men who didn't quite fit in and looked socially really awkward um, this is all my judgment, of course, but we're having a great time. Is there a type of person that you see that's in the gaming world? Is that a thing or is that just bullshit? I think it's factual and it's bullshit at the same time because gaming as a medium, whether it's video games or whether it's um, like tabletop role-playing games, that kind of thing, has always been very popular. It did start as a, primarily a subculture of, as you say, kind of socially awkward white males. I, again, this is kind of coming into my upbringing. I've never really identified with that because my mother is a video gamer. Oh, she? Her and my dad used to while away many a night when I was a little in playing stuff like Eye of the Beholder and like Dungeons and Dragons video games on like wow. 64 and Amiga and stuff like that. So okay. for me, it's always been actually very normalized. My mother still plays MMO RPGs. Uh, she plays like Guild Wars or I think she's trying Elder Scrolls online. Like my dad still video games. It's becoming more and more socially acceptable. You also get the people who play the annual kind of the EA games. So like it'd be Madden in your country, FIFA over here, like the, the football games. Oh yeah. Those tend not to be your atypical gamers. Yeah. You know, a lot of them are, but it's, it becomes a more trendy thing because in those games, it becomes a more social thing because yeah. you know, you'll go over to your mate's house and you'll play a few rounds of FIFA. The, the idea of gaming cafes 
There's a couple in Newcastle where I live. They're becoming more socially acceptable. Before the pandemic, I saw people who would not fit your atypical nerd. Comic-cons over here are very popular with people who are nerdy as much as who aren't nerdy. And I think that's with stuff like the Marvel films becoming very into the cultural zeitgeist and Star Wars being a thing again and, you know, that kind of thing. I think the idea of your common garden nerd as portrayed in the 80s and the 90s, I don't think that exists as much anymore. Nerdy culture is getting more and more fashionable. And for the D&D example, if you go on YouTube and watch um, a show called Critical Role, hosted by Matthew Mercer, who's a very famous voice actor in video games and cartoons and anime, and six of his friends, who are all voice actors in the medium, and they make it cool. They fully admit that they're nerdy voice actors playing Dungeons & Dragons. But it's hit the cultural zeitgeist so hard. People who have no intention of playing Dungeons & Dragons will watch Critical Role because these people, I mean, they're professional actors. The show is so well produced. It's slickly produced. They get thousands upon thousands of viewers every time they stream it. Dungeons & Dragons, despite the fact it's been around since the 70s, it's never been more popular as it is now. What do you make of people who watch video games being played by other people? What is that culture? I mean, that's my culture. I quite happily watch people play video games. In my own experience, there are some games I'm just not interested in playing for myself, but I'm interested in watching. For the longest time, it used to be horror video games until I kind of got into them myself. I enjoy strategy games, but I often don't have the time to play them because they take so long. So I'll quite happily watch a YouTuber play them. But I guess I don't get it because it's like, I mean, playing a video game is cool because you're on a little journey and you're doing a little thing. But what the heck is so interesting about watching someone else? I mean, you don't have any agency at all and you're just kind of... I just don't understand the pull. The, 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 I don't get it. My counter to that one is always, what's the pull of watching American football or soccer? Uh, I don't, but... <laughs> no, but it's the same, same argument. It's a game it's like you a sport. can okay. play with your friends in the park. And a lot of times, like I say, it might be a game I'm not particularly interested in playing, okay. but I'm a bit curious on. In a lot of cases, if it's a game I'm curious about, but I, I can't get a view from like reviews or the press, like if it'll be something I enjoy, I'll watch a few episodes of someone playing it on YouTube and it'll be like, okay, I'll probably enjoy this game, so I'll pick it up. In some cases, it's just... I like the person playing it and they're quite funny. Like, like I like their personality or they entertain me. I like to think I'm a perceptive person, but I miss a lot when I'm playing through games because I'm so engrossed in the action. So I'll miss a lot of story stuff or I'll miss a lot of fun things that the developers right. put in for like eagle-eyed players. So I like right. watching stuff like that where someone will break down what makes it, what makes this game tick or how it works or what the artificial intelligence do in that kind yeah, of Yeah, I guess I, I get it. I Sometimes I watch chess being played online and like there's this one famous player who he plays, you know, there's all these names for the openings like the Sicilian and the King's Gambit and he plays what's called the Bong Cloud. And the Bong right. Cloud, <laughs> is when he makes this his first two moves of the game is when he has to actually move his king out onto the board which is a really bad idea but he yeah. that he's so good that he'll beat you know 98% of the people who play him even though he plays the bong cloud opening and it's pretty funny and he makes comments so I, I hear you're coming from I wanted to ask you do you sometimes when you're feeling depressed or you're feeling down do you make a point of like okay I'm gonna go play a video game I'm gonna go play guitar I'm gonna go do this activity like how does gaming assist you in your your daily struggle with depression. So if if I'm in a particularly low mood, I'll probably not have the energy to game or to play guitar or anything like that. That's when I'll watch something gaming related. I'll find a creator that kind of really G's me up or makes me laugh or something like that. Okay. In the same way that you would go and you would watch like a comedy show or something like that that would make you laugh when you're feeling low. But there is always something I can be doing to kind of pick up and play. 
I mean, I have a gaming PC, I have a Nintendo Switch, I have an Xbox downstairs. So even just, for example, Friday at work was a quiet day. I was waiting on tests, I was feeling a bit low. So I was sat at my computer with kind of my Microsoft Teams open, waiting for someone just to point out whether something's worked or not. And I I grabbed Mm -hmm. my Switch and I was just sat at my desk playing on my Switch just while I was waiting for my test team to come back to me. It was something that kept my mind occupied because otherwise I would have been sat bored looking at a white screen because I had nothing to do. And that's kind of how I dip in and out of it. Most of the time when I want to really get into a game like whenever I find the time for it and even if that means you know it's a bit of a late night I'll wait for my girlfriend to go to bed and I'll sit and I'll game for a couple of hours that's kind of that's my me time this is not to sound in any way disrespectful to my girlfriend but this is the time where I can be by myself and fully switch off from the world it's this time where even though I'm mentally engaged with something I'm completely disengaged that helps me feel better because it's almost like white noise for my head Sometimes I'll play games I've played before, I've finished many times, and I know the game inside out, and everything is muscle memory, and that actually helps me work through problems in the same way that, you know, someone who reads a book multiple times over or watches the same TV show in the background, that kind of thing. Especially with doing software development, a lot of times I'll come across a problem that I can't fix or I can't work out in my head. And sometimes I just need to kill some zombies for a little while, and in my brain I'll go, oh, that's the answer, and then I'll write it down, and the next day I can pick it up when I come back to work. It does work. It's a very good way of resetting one's mind. One of my video games that I like are tower defense games. You, you acquire resources, yeah. you build weapons, yeah. and the invading force gets annihilated. And there's this one, you're mining asteroids. It's a really simple game, but I find it to be incredibly relaxing. I can almost feel like when I'm playing it that the stress is coming off of my body like steam. Yeah, no, yeah, I've been like that. Yeah, it's amazing. I don't know what to make of it, but I'm certain it's healthy. I remember the first time I ever played StarCraft back in college, I remember I was just having a terrible week. And my roommate, he had this really huge screen and he had just made some cookies. You know, his mother had just dropped off some cookies and he's like, here, here's a plate full of cookies. Uh, I'm leaving for a few hours. Why don't you sit and play StarCraft? I'm like, what's StarCraft? He says, just sit and play. And honestly, man, it was the most relaxing, thrilling three hours oh, <laughs> I, 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 I my... StarCraft a lot. I've played a lot of StarCraft in my time and yeah it's great for that kind of thing because with stuff like starcraft or like any kind of strategy game you're plonked in a map and it's just like okay well i know the first 10 minutes i'm going to be getting resources i'm going to be building up my army in this way then i've got to go find the find the computer player let's go find him let's smash him with a hammer oh wait i lost let's do it again (laughs) let's do it again it's this really relaxing loop where you know that in any given kind of half an hour of game you've got like maybe three or four sections to it and you know like okay but you know i'm at 10 minutes i'm going to be pushing forward and yeah i like that a lot the times when i need to kind of reset my head that's when i don't play narrative games i'll play games with that kind of repetitive loop to them so uh, dark souls is one of my favorite games and favorite games for that because i've finished it many times it's a notoriously difficult yeah you finished dark souls you're the man oh multiple times wow when i was doing youtube like i was i was writing the guides for one of the wikis like, oh <laughs> it, was like it, it is my favorite game of all time but dark souls is one of those ones like i said i have just this most muscle memory with it i can practically speed run it but it is that loop that i'm so familiar with but there's no kind of story pushed in your face i don't have to pay attention to it i just know oh there's a zombie there there's a dragon over there if i go up here i'll get killed so i won't go there you know i know it all in the back of my head it's my thinking game yeah <laughs> if you want to describe it that way one of the things i enjoy most about the video game industry is there there is actually kind of a low barrier to entry for people to get into to it. Most of the games that I've had the most fun with have been little little games made by one or two developers. One in particular, uh, Hollow Knight. If you take the concept of Dark Souls but make it into like a platformer, a bit like Mario, it's got this wonderfully gothic art style. It's, it's a beautifully dark game. Can you describe Dark Souls quickly? Dark Souls is a, me- a medieval fantasy game that's based around a combat loop. 
you have a very insignificant amount of health, um, you have stamina to manage, and you have a lot of enemies in front of you. And basically, you have to explore this world gradually getting yourself stronger, like any kind of role-playing game. But the game is tuned in such a way it has a, it has a very sharp difficulty curve, which puts a lot of people off. Because it's very easy to die in Dark Souls, and when you die, <laughs> you go back to your last checkpoint. All the enemies are resurrected, and you have to do it all over again. It can be a very unintuitive game. It deliberately doesn't tell you a lot. It doesn't tell you a lot about its story. It only gives you the most basic instruction on its controls. It doesn't tell you about stuff like you have to manage your stamina, or like if you run out of stamina, you can't really move very well. Or if you've got too much armor on, you can't dodge out the way of enemy attacks. Stuff like that. It's, it's a game that rewards player exploration and player persistence. And the one thing it doesn't tell people, and I, I get frustrated with it because a lot of people, when the game came out, had this attitude of, oh, if you, you just need to get good at the game. It's like, no, you don't. You need to pay attention to the game because every time you die, it's your own stupid fault. Oh, and that's what the game should be telling you. So it's about accountability. Because it's basically, if you died, don't do that again. I've actually coached friends through Dark Souls. I told them, like, funny. you know, go to this place. You've got these guys to fight. Take your time, you know, circle around them. Watch watch how they attack, that kind of thing. So You're like Gandalf. Yeah, <laughs> a little bit, yeah. Getting the beard for it. Yeah, so you do. Grey come in. So Hollow Knight, which is the game I was talking about, that was made by three people was put out on the PC and it became a smash hit and it's one of my favorite games of all time. The PC is great for stuff like that because you get all these little developers pushing this stuff out. Right. Because when when you get the bigger games, they are published by large companies. They've got multi-multi-million pound budgets or dollar budgets. They have to make that money back. They can't be risky. In the same way, I guess, with cinema, like, you know, the Marvel films are all, to a point, quite safe, aren't they? Yeah. Because Disney puts so much money into them, expecting so much money back. It's a guarantee. You're not going to get a Marvel film that challenges anybody. What's the most difficult game you've ever played? Probably StarCraft. Really? Well, with StarCraft, because I did try to get into the multiplayer. Uh-huh. And the thing is with StarCraft is you need to be mechanically perfect to be good at it. One of the wild things about StarCraft 2 is it has a measurement when you finish each online match, which is APM, actions per minute. Uh-huh. And it tracks how many key presses, how many mouse clicks that you do throughout right. the entire game and gives you an average over time. When I was playing it, the best I got, I, I was averaging about 80 actions a minute. And the StarCraft pros, like the champions, they're hitting two, 300 actions a minute. Jesus Christ. They're like putting in several, several commands per second. There's no way I can compete with that. And it is no is it's a very unforgiving game even when you're playing the campaigns but when you're playing against other people oh my god it's so difficult just to win a match even at a low tier you get so so used to playing like Dark Souls where like everything has a set, a set kind of attack or a set kind of animation. You, that's what you're watching out for. But when you play against people, it's so unpredictable. You don't know what another person's going to do. There's so many times when I was playing StarCraft um, multiplayer, I'd be thinking, I'm, I'm doing really well. I'm doing really fast. I've got my base got up. I used to play Zerg. So I had all my Zerglings ready. I was like, okay, let's, let's just... <laughs> Go out on a scouting party. And I think I'm being really fast here. And I'd send a few Zerglings out. As a, uh, Zerglings are, by the way, for the listeners, are, the, are like your basic um, creature when you're playing as the Zerg race. Yeah. They're like your bog standard soldier. Yeah. Um, so I'd send like 10 of them out thinking, oh, okay, we'll just scout. We'll just see what the enemy's doing. And I'd run into their army advancing on me. And wow. I'd get flattened in like in a few minutes. And it was just the most stressful thing in the world. I had to give up playing that because I just got angry with it. What's a game that doesn't help? What's a game that you don't like seems to make you worse? Like, what's an unhealthy game in your estimation? From just kind of outside observation, I would say a lot of these kind of these free-to-play games that become very culturally heavy, I think Fortnite is very unhealthy. Why is that? So the game itself is fine. Functionally, it's fine. It's competitive. You go into this world, you get shot, you go back into the world. What becomes unhealthy about it is the way it's marketed and the way it's monetized because it's a free game 
But Epic, who are the developer, make their money through selling players skins, character skins for the games and kind of add-ons and that kind of thing. None of which affect your ability to play the game. What's a skin? A skin is like the outfit for the character, what the character looks like you're playing. Like I said, they don't affect the game in any way, so they don't give you like an armor boost or give you any damage boosts or anything like that. But because the game is aimed at kind of teenagers, 11 to 15 is kind of the target audience, I guess. They market these skins players in a very unhealthy fashion that they kind of prey on FOMO. I the see. fear of missing out. They will hype up the skin, whatever skin it is. I don't know. They did a tie-in with DC, so they had a Harley Quinn skin for a little while for whatever right. the last Harley Quinn film was. And that will be on the store for seven days. If you don't buy it in that time, it disappears. So every time you log into the game, it's popped up going, five days left. Oh, I see. And like, you to buy the skin. So it really preys on people's yeah. consumerism and stuff. It doesn't, it, not so yeah. much on the game itself. Um, yeah, and they're, and, they're, and they're not cheap. I mean, I think they're $20 ugh. for a skin. Fortnite in the last few years has made $9.2 billion. Oh my God. They are dredging so much money from so many people. There are so many videos, if you, if you even if you just kind of glance around YouTube, of kids who are playing Fortnite and experiencing like genuine rage to the point where they'll smash controllers or smash their phones or whatever when they lose a match. Yeah. I think a game like that can become very unhealthy, especially for younger minds. Yeah. Because it's an addictive gameplay loop. Like each game lasts about 20 minutes and the game encourages you to get back in there as quickly as possible it never tells the player like this is just a game right like everything becomes about fortnite you see all the merchandise around you see all the marketing for it like the, the, the how epic push this game the unhealthy culture that comes around it because these kids it becomes their entire life like call of duty has a similar kind of game like a battle royale game where you've got 100 players whittled down to a winner which is what fortnite is but call of duty warzone is aimed at adults it's like it's, it's an 18 rated game or an m rated game in the us because it's got blood and it's it, it's like real weapons and you, you're fighting against humans whereas fortnite has this cuddly cartoony look yeah. And there's no blood in it and like people just kind of fall over when you shoot them. It's not a kill, quote unquote. So it becomes very insidious in the way that it targets people. And I think it can breed a lot of negative mental health aspects as well, especially kind of the way it pushes FOMO and it can cause rage and it can just generally, I think, be bad for people. So I've heard weird stories about people stealing tools and stuff like virtual virtual weapons and then actual murder happening in real life yeah you get those stories occasionally the media doesn't help with this no i want to shift gears a little bit have you met anybody else who was kind of saved by the video game gaming world I do have a few very good in real life friends, but most of my friends are what I refer to as pocket friends, who are pocket friends I've met online through games or through pocket podcasts friends. or whatever. Ooh, pocket friends, yeah. I they like live in that. my pocket. I gotta write, um, <laughs> write that down. That's cool. I want a pocket friend. One of, one of my best friends, uh, who I'm actually best man at his wedding soon, I met through video games and I met through uh, playing many years ago Call of Duty. It was like I was in an online lobby with one of our mutual friends and I kind of met him. And it's kind of one thing is that he's been my best friend for a very long time and he he has been a significant rock in my own mental health issues mm-hmm. and i've been a rock in his but the gaming really helped it was you know we'd have an hour an evening and we'd just sit and we'd play a few rounds of call of duty it didn't matter whether we won or lost it was just a bit of dumb fun and i think because we didn't take it particularly seriously it became this just nice outlet it was just like hanging out with your mates at the point you're not even in the same room you're not even the same end of the country i've never met the lad I'm the best man at his wedding in July. You never <laughs> met him before. That's amazing. Yeah, it's one of the like I say, most of my best friends in the world I haven't met in real life. But... That's so weird. Don't you think that's weird? Is that the ultimate expression of the introverted solution? Like a bunch of people that are my friends that I've never 
actually met? I, I would say it's like the internet has been a, a great many evils to this world and contributed a lot of bad things to this world. But one thing positive it's contributed is that it's made the world smaller for a lot of people, uh-huh. and especially for those who are introverted or who are kind of socially awkward, because you can be genuine with someone without the risk of that kind of social awkwardness by being around someone, if that makes sense. Yeah. It sounds like really weird to say, but you can lose a lot of your hang-ups with being around people by talking to people online. Again, like with everything, it has to be done in a healthy way. Like there are many ways to be unhealthy about making friends over the internet. Certainly. The popularity of that TV show Catfish is the evidence of that. Right. But the the fact that my best friends in the world live all over the world. Mm-hmm. Like, like the guest you had on recently, Alec. I've been a very good friend of his for years. Yeah. Never even set foot in the same country as him. That's amazing. Yeah. It sounds like one of the things we're touching on is the value of community that um, not just like yeah. you know, earlier you said it was about having something to do with your head and clearing your head. And now, now we're into the community piece. Have you ever had occasion to help somebody virtually who was feeling really depressed and suicidal and, and talk them down? Yeah, a few a few times. Yeah. I remember for a long time, I used, I used to quite enjoy internet chat rooms. This was just as a way of kind of talking anonymously to somebody. And it was kind of what one of the first steps of kind of coming out of my shell with my depression. Mm-hmm. But I do remember talking quite sincerely to someone for a couple of hours who was feeling quite suicidal. Oh, that's fantastic. And it was one of those ones. It was, it was an anonymous chat room. I never heard from them again because we didn't swap contact details. Right. But by the end of the conversation, they said they felt better. So I hope I help that person and that they're still around. Don't know where they were in the world. They didn't tell me, but That's that so person incredible. hopefully still exists. When I was making YouTube videos and I was doing kind of regular series, I had a few people message me saying like that they enjoyed my videos enough that it kept them sane. It was oh, like wow. a thing that they look forward to in their day because wow. I release videos daily. And it's little stuff like that. Like I haven't gone out of my way to help people in that way. But when opportunity has presented me, I, I will talk to people about their depression and help them just feel better if they let me. The hardest thing with being on the, the outside of someone else's depression is they have to let you in to a degree. Certainly. There is an element of having them want to be helped. Have you thought about developing some kind of, this is sort of a weird idea, uh, like a video game platform where people struggling with depression come to play video games and sort of deal with their feelings. Is there such a thing? I don't believe there is such a thing. There's been initiatives over the years to kind of destigmatize depression amongst gamers and people who enjoy video games. But I don't think there's ever been a dedicated platform. I think that would be something interesting to put together. Yeah. I know a lot of people, especially Twitch streamers, um, will do charity streams and charity events. I know quite a lot of them do them for like uh, the charity Mind in the UK. I've seen people do ones like there's someone I used to follow. She does one every year called Gaming for Gonads, which is to raise money for testicular cancer. Oh, awesome. Because I think someone in her life had suffered from testicular cancer and she does it every year it's like a three-day thing but i mean she's quite a big stream as well so she raises like thousands of dollars a year for it well i elect you to go out into the world and find a way to make this happen it sounds like it's the kind of thing that wants to happen i would imagine somebody who struggles with anxiety or ptsd or any number of mental disorders could come and not only find community and, and something to do but just get good information when people are really depressed or anxious or upset they don't they're very receptive they don't want to take stuff in so it's very difficult to get them into a place of receptivity. Yeah. My sense is, is that when they step into the gaming world, that's a world that they trust and they trust the people that they're speaking to. I think it would be really incredible if, you know, you and some programmers or I don't even know what 
I don't even know what this would look like. I don't know if it would be a YouTube channel, <laughs> if it would be just a regular website with some video game recommendations and a platform, if it would want to be one particular video game. I have no clue. But I do think that there's a massive amount of mental health involved by video games and gaming and that needs to be expressed. It could be a, ma a massive contribution to the yeah, world. Yeah, I mean, the, as the adage goes, never dare a fool, and I'm probably pretty foolish. I could probably think of something like that. It's not like I, I've got nothing to do in the day. Um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, that's, that, that sounds interesting. I, I, I would like to see that in the world, actually. Well, if someone's listening, please do it. Let me, let, let's just put our eye on the future here. What is next for you? You're making a podcast. It sounds like you're in yeah. pretty good mental health to me. What's coming up for you, Michael? So we have a second podcast launching soon, which is our D&D one. For me personally, I'm looking forward to not being anxious about the outside world. You know, as COVID infection rates go down, I'm getting less and less anxious. You know, right. I'm clinically vulnerable because of my weight. So I know the world's not going to be as it was in 2019 for probably another couple of years at the very least. But gaining some semblance of normality back. I'm looking forward to being able to travel, you know, go meet the lads I'm doing this podcast with. I spend hours a week with them. Doing, right. doing this podcast again i've never met them before it's all been done on zoom so it'd be nice to see them in the same room and you know go have a pint in terms of the, the best things coming for me next is i'm just going to carry on as i am i'm in a very good place with my life at the minute i'm in a very good relationship i live in a nice place i've got a good job i've got hobbies that satisfy me i think for probably the first time in my life despite the fact the world's been on fire for the last year or so for the first time in my life i think i'm actually genuinely happy Wow. I'm still going to be with my therapist. I see my therapist once a month. I made a conscious decision when things started opening up in this country that I was going to be investing in myself physically and mentally. For the first time in my life, I'm seeing a personal trainer to try and do some exercise properly. I see a chiropractor every month trying to sort out issues with my back stemming from my exactly. weight and the fact that I have a job where I sit down for eight hours a day. How much weight do you want to lose? I would like to lose about 150 pounds. Wow. So for the benefit of the listeners, and I'm not, I'm not ashamed of this, I'm currently 386 pounds. At okay. my peak, I was 430. So I have lost weight. My height, I'm, I'm just over six foot, maybe six, close to six foot one. I'm quite broad chested. So 250 pounds-ish. I think that's okay. a pretty good weight for my frame. In a few years time, when I can get on a plane comfortably, not have to like be worried about asking for seatbelt extenders and or having to sure, buy two sure. seats or anything like that. I think that'll make me a very happy person because I've never traveled in my life. I've been a very UK centric person. Oh, really? Yeah, I'd like to see the world. What I really like about this conversation is that your journey towards mental health is so, it's not what anyone would expect. It just isn't. It's not what I expected either. The one thing I always keep in my head is that there's nothing that, like, that can happen that will make it all go away unless I stop caring. Even before I've gotten to this point of kind of exercising regularly and trying to eat better and trying to lose weight, stuff like that. For the last three years or so, I've always been very aware of my mental health. Ever since I started going to therapy, I never let it get on top of me. And I accept that I will have worse days than others. Mm -hmm. When I've tried having treatment in the past, earlier before this kind of life-changing event for me on the bridge, I used to get very annoyed at myself for having low days and I would kind of beat myself up about it and think, no, you're on tablets, you should be fine. You, sh you shouldn't be ha having a depressive issue and stuff like that. Like, I would be incredibly hard on myself because I thought I should be better than this. And it wasn't until I started in therapy that I came, the my therapist didn't tell me this, it was my own realization that I'm a very flawed human being and this I will have bad days, but a yeah. bad day is a bad day. It doesn't need to be a bad week or a bad month or a bad year. Or a bad, or a bad life. life. Exactly. I count myself lucky that I managed to pull myself out of it the way I did because I know there are so many men who don't. 
and yeah. so many men who never seek help or who never push themselves. What would you recommend for someone who is either struggling with depression or has a loved one who's struggling with depression? What are some actions that people can take that are pretty solid? For someone who is suffering from depression, indulge yourself in the right way. Find something that makes you happy, not something that you think makes you feel better. Find something that makes you happy. And I know that can be one of the hardest things in the world. Even if it's just getting up and having a shower and you feel clean after a shower, it makes you feel good inside or having a shave or even brushing your teeth. If it's been that bad and you just, all you can manage to do it is brush your teeth, take it. Take that little good feeling. If you have a hobby that you've kind of been ignoring, maybe just try it. I talked about how much I love to play the guitar. I didn't play music for about two or three years and I lost the love for it. When I tried picking it up during that period, I would get frustrated because I'd lost the muscle memory in my fingers and I couldn't play the way I used to play. And when I finally picked it up and stuck with it, I didn't play what I used to play. I searched for something new. And it was just this tiny little tiny little thing where I just played a, cu- a couple of chords. I didn't try to be fancy. I didn't try to play Metallica or anything like that. I just played a couple of chords and I just started enjoying myself. And it was, that, it was just that small little spark of reminding me why I enjoyed that. So yeah, so if, if you're suffering from depression, just find something that brings you a little joy mm-hmm. and indulge yourself in it, even if it's just a little bit, because that indulgence in that hobby or that activity or that way of thinking or that book or that TV show will lead on to more of it. And you can use it to focus your mind a lot. If you're someone who's living with someone who has depression or is like in a relationship or is close with someone who has this kind of depression, don't force them. Be aware of how they're feeling. Ask them the questions by all means but you can't force someone to open up who doesn't want to. And depression is a lot like quitting an addiction or quitting smoking or quitting drinking. The person has to want the help to do it or they have to want to quit or they have to want to get better. If you can just be there and be kind to them, that is more than anyone else can possibly do for them. I remember all the times when someone was kind to me when I was at my lowest. All the times a friend would say, hey, do you want? we're going for a burger, do you want to come with me? I'd be like, yeah, sure. But I also distinctly remember all the times people were nasty to me because they didn't understand what I was going through. And that's not their fault that they didn't understand what I was going through. But I remember every negative reaction to my depression. I remember every time someone said, oh, you've got no reason to be depressed. You should be happy and all that kind of thing. All those, those kind of negative, what feels like an attack in that moment. And it probably isn't. It just comes from a place of lack of understanding. So do your best to be understanding for that person with depression. Even look it up. Just look at what they're going through. And depression is a very hard thing to describe, but it's something that I wouldn't wish upon anybody. There's a great many resources out there for people to look at, which will describe what depression can feel like in a way that someone who hasn't ever suffered from it can understand. A lot of times people who have depression really struggle to describe what they're going through. They boil it down to, I'm just feeling sad today or I'm having a low low mood or whatever. That doesn't describe to someone else in the world what that actually feels like. Yeah. It's impossible to describe that kind of that, that that crushing feeling, that absolute despair. The best way I ever described it to my therapist is it felt like I'd been dropped in an oubliette. In a in who? An oubliette. This What's is my Britishness coming out. It's a, it's an old kind of dungeon where it's basically just a hole that you drop someone into and leave them to die. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, not something you can climb up. You can't really see the top of it. It's so high. Sounds like one of those video games. <laughs> no, it's, it's a real thing. Medieval, quite a medieval thing, but it's um, it's like trying to describe a, what a black hole is. You know, yeah. it's like light can't escape it. What does that mean? It's like joy can't escape. You know, happiness can't escape. The inner light can't escape. Exactly. Yeah. It's hard. It's hard. To, it's hard to do because I've been around people with depression. You just have to be there for them and just listen to them when they speak. Yeah. And and stop trying to change. Yeah. Them. So, yeah. I th- well, I think that's the, that's the problem with human nature. Is human nature. Everyone wants to try to fix something. 
Yeah. It's, like, it's, a, it's seen as a kindness. But if someone comes to you and says, like, I'm so depressed, I feel this, I've felt this for a long time, the natural human instinct is going to go, okay, well, let's. what can we do? Let's get you to the gym. Let's do this. Let's do that. And the other side, no, don't do that. Just listen to them. And yeah. if, if, if they ask for help, then go, okay, well, let's speak to your doctor or let's go to A&E or whatever. And my sign off is, uh, you know, if you find that your plate is too full, you know, get yourself a bigger plate. And uh, <laughs> I think that. <laughs> I, I think, think that's that, why I'm the weight I am. <laughs> yeah, well, me too. But I think that when you, when somebody is really depressed, their plate is full. And one of the ways that you can expand their plate is by listening to them because they can't hold all that they're carrying. My old therapist said that a lot of times when people were shell-shocked from the war, they wouldn't speak because the words that they had in their minds weren't sufficient to describe the horror that they had witnessed. They couldn't, in other words, they, it's like they couldn't hold what they had within them. It was too much. Yeah. People just need, man, they just need support. Yeah. Well, I, 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 are we done? Are we complete? What do you think? I, th- I think we're complete. I think, yeah, that's, uh, that, that was marvelous. So, Michael, thank you so much, and um, I really look forward to future conversations, and I, I hope this podcast reaches somebody and turns the tide on the antagonism that so many people hold towards the gaming universe. My sincerest hope whenever I talk about stuff like this is that it reaches someone who needs it. Yeah. All right, sir. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Pertinent information stemming from this podcast will appear in the program notes. Should you have any questions or wish to be a guest on my show, please email me at benjaminrusick at gmail.com or check out my website at benjaminrusick.com. Thank you for listening. And once again, if you ever find your plate is full, well, consider getting a bigger plate.